We went in low to Halab J in an Iranian Air Force helicopter, hugging the hillside in order to keep away from Iraqi planes and artillery fire. Below us, the ruins of what had been a town of 70,000 people. Geographically, Halab J is in Iraq, but its people were Kurdish and owed little allegiance to the Iraqis. For that, they paid a heavy penalty. The Iranians maintain that three separate types of gas were used: cyanide, mustard gas, and nerve gas. This is one of the worst examples of a gas attack in this war, perhaps the worst. The bodies which litter this town were those of people who ran out of their houses to try to escape the gas and then were killed out in the open, either by more gas or by high explosive. Chemical weapons were the first mass-produced weapons of mass destruction and were used on the battlefields of World War One. Even though their use was banned after that war, they were still being produced and stockpiled by nations around the world, including the United States, before being fully banned by the International Chemical Weapons Convention in 1997. And yet, despite having been outlawed and removed from global arsenals, chemical weapons attacks by both state and non-state actors have continued well into the 21st century. Welcome to Nukes of Hazard, a podcast by the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. I'm Jeff Wilson, an analyst at the center and your host. After the horrors of chemical warfare during the First World War, most of the world rejected this type of weapon. Unfortunately, a hundred years have passed and we are still struggling to stamp out this indiscriminate brand of evil. In 1988, during the closing days of the Iran-Iraq War, the Iraqi military gassed ethnic Kurdish civilians in their own country with a lethal cocktail of mustard gas, sarin, and VX nerve agents in what would become known as the Halabja Massacre. This was done under the auspices of fighting off invading Iranians and relieving a surrounded Iraqi military base outside the city. But it was actually part of a genocidal plot by Iraq's Ba'athist leaders against their ethnic Kurdish minority. A little over a decade later, the United States led a coalition of the willing to invade Iraq, citing the Iraqi regime's supposed continuing production of chemical and nuclear weapons. That invasion claimed the lives of tens of thousands, destabilized much of the Middle East, led to the rise of ISIS, squandered U.S. political capital and global goodwill, and, in one way or another, has touched every American's life. Even more recently, between 2012 and 2018, we have seen several indiscriminate chemical attacks on civilians and rebel forces fighting the Syrian military forces of President Bashar al-Assad. While the United States spearheaded an initiative that oversaw the destruction of more than 1,300 metric tons of Syrian chemical weapons and the precursor chemicals used to build them in 2014, Many have feared that these repeated attacks and the inability of the international community to stop their use has lowered the bar for the use of chemical weapons by both state and non-state actors. Just as concerning, we have also seen the brazen use of chemical weapons in the targeted assassination attempts of international figures, likely by the intelligence services of states like Russia and North Korea. In 2017, Sergei Skripal, a former Russian agent who likely became a double agent for the United Kingdom's intelligence service, MI6, and his daughter were nearly killed by a Russian nerve agent. Five other people were exposed to that agent, including three who suffered serious conditions from the exposure, 
a detective who was investigating the case, a man who discovered the abandoned perfume bottle used to deploy the agent, and the woman that he gave it to, who later died from spraying the agent onto herself. North Korea has also been suspected of assassinating Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, with VX nerve agents in Malaysia in 2017. Today's interview is a special one. You'll be hearing from John Gilbert, a senior science fellow at the center. Previously, John served as a senior officer in the U.S. Air Force, retiring as a colonel after more than 25 years of service. He served on and commanded strategic missile crews and spent more than 15 years managing organizations that analyzed foreign WMD capabilities and delivery systems. He established the Chemical and Biological Operations Divisions within the U.S. On-Site Inspection Agency, which is now part of the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. He was also a member of the U.S. National Chemical Weapons Delegations and negotiating teams in Geneva, The Hague, and Moscow. For this episode, he interviewed Marijuan Hama, a man who, as an eight-year-old, survived a chemical weapons attack in Iraq. Let's listen to their conversation. Could you talk a little bit about what life was like in Halabja before the March 1988 chemical weapon attacks uh, by Saddam Hussein? Yeah, so the, the year I was born, 1980, I was born in January, and the Iraq-Iran war started in September that year. So from 1980 to 1988, uh, there was the cloud of war and almost daily bombardment on Halabja from the Iranian side. And the reason for that was because Halabja was very close to the Iranian border and there was uh, all kind of uh, conflict along the border. In fact, it reached to a point where the Iraqi government was accusing two sides. The Iranian regime was was attacking from time to time and bombarding the indiscriminate, I would say, indiscriminately in in the town of Halabja and other areas. And also there was activities of the Kurdish Peshmerga along the border against the Iraqi forces. So, and that is, you know, with the time passing that got more intensified and it got to a point when the Iraqi government relocated or resettled most of the people from the villages around Halabja, hundreds of villages, and they destroyed the villages so that they can prevent because they were accusing the the villages of sheltering the Peshmerga forces during that time. So they, they, they raised the, the uh, villages to the ground and they relocated the population to Halabja. So within those years from 1980 to 1988, the population in Halabja ballooned from like 20, 30,000 people to an estimated about 75,000 people. In March 1988, the chemical weapon attacks occurred. Were you in Halabja at that time, and and where in the city were you? Yes, yeah. We were all in Halabja, and I remember that morning, actually, I was going to, because we usually go to the my father's tea house around 4 o'clock in the morning, and I remember waking up that morning a couple of days before, in fact, because a couple of days before the attack, uh, the Iranian forces, along with the Peshmerga forces, they launched a massive attack. And they captured Halabja along with a bunch of other areas. So, and that morning when we woke up, as I say, a couple of days before the chemical attack, we could hear from afar sounds of artilleries and, 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 and machine guns. And my dad thought that was not a good idea to go to the tea house to open the business that day. So we did not. And 
we had a basement my father had invested like everybody else was doing during the eight years of the Iran-Iraq war in building a basement. We still actually have it in the house uh, so that we can shelter from, especially from bombardment. We had other family members, my, my uncles and cousins, uh, come into our house during that time because everybody knew that the Iraqi government was going to try to capture, recapture the city. Uh, many people, in fact, from Halabja left to nearby town, especially to Suleimania, which is about about 50 miles away, west, northwest of Halabja. But, but then the Iraqi government bombarded the bridge that connects the two areas because they, did, they were worried that the Iranian forces will cross the bridge and they will capture more areas. So that chance for us, probably, and for many, many people, was no longer an option to leave the town, so we stayed there. So the morning of the attack, that was the, as I said, there was constant bombardment. But I remember that day because there was nothing to do, no school. Uh, I had all my cousins and friends. We were like, I mean, dozens of kids in the neighborhood. We were playing that morning that... And then things actually changed rapidly because the Iraqi jets, they started bombarding the town. And uh, what was different from that morning was they started bombarding the town with napalm bombs, which creates huge damage and just the sound is, is, is scary. And so that we all had to go to the basement. And in our basement, we were more than 50 people in a very small place. We stayed there. The adult among us, they knew there, there is a chance that the Iraqi government would use chemical weapon because the Iraqi government had used it in, in, in small scale in villages uh, in Kurdistan region, actually. So people knew to some extent that that is a possibility and that's why they had for all of us in the in the basement wet towels and buckets of water just in case if that happens we don't remember a lot until in terms of of, of knowing that there was a chemical weapon actually had been used until around four o'clock in the afternoon somebody knocked on our door and they were screaming that if there is anybody in the house left, I think some they were going house to house, some, some good Samaritan, that they, you should leave because chemical weapon has been uh, used. And that's when we got out. The adults always got out and they checked out the neighborhood and about, in fact, a quarter mile below our house, that's when one location that had been used, a bomb, uh, exploded one of the chemical warp and that's where they it has to the estimate in fact more than 300 people were killed in that location which was not very far from our house that the thing about that day we all remember was the air was almost standstill air there was no wind which to many people probably made things worse and so the adults among that they were they were deciding where to go next. And Halabja had two available evacuation routes where, again, to go to the Iraqi regime areas still under control was not an option because 
people were worried the Iraqi regime or the forces will kill them. And the second, as I said, the bridge was, was destroyed. So there was two routes towards Iran. One of them was to go directly east of Halabja through the mountain, which is very, very hard. And the other one was taking a main road to, again, it's east of Halabja, but that was the main road. I don't remember who recommended that we should not be taking the main road because it had been bombarded. And I think that was a good solution because later we found out that, in fact, that's where most of the people had died because the Iraqi government had bombarded that area. And in fact, one of the chemical weapon had been dropped dropped in one of the main water spring in the area so people after walking for a mile getting tired and they see the water they had tried to get fresh water not knowing that it had also been contaminated with chemical weapon so a lot of people died there uh, we took the the harder road it took us two days to get to the iranian border with all my family for not a very it's, it's usually, you know, it's still like distance is not a lot, but uh, we, during daytime, we would hide out. And during nighttime, we couldn't use any flashlight because people were worried about jets overhead attacking. So that's that's about the day. Along the way, even though I was seven, I remember seeing dead people. I remember seeing, uh, sorry, I was eight. Uh, I remember hearing people under damaged and destroyed houses calling for help. Uh, as I said, we left in the afternoon at around four o'clock. Uh, soon it was nighttime. And yeah, after two days, we made it to the Iranian border where we got uh, to a refugee camp. Did you see or hear or smell anything directly related to the chemical yeah. attack? Yeah, uh, we, we all did. It was mostly the smell of a mixture of garlic, banana, apple, these are the things I remember. But as I said, because we were lucky in, in the sense that we were not impacted a lot, even though we were just less than a mile, in fact, less than half a mile from the location near our house that had been hit. But we, we got a lot of, once we got to the Iranian border, we had a lot of respiratory issues, a couple of distance uh, relative actually of mine, they temporarily lost vision, but skin issues. One of my sisters, she got a huge uh, pimple on her head. It took months for the doctors to, to remove it. I mean, one thing I remember vividly about us, all of us getting respiratory issues, I remember that we literally brought by boxes of, of medicine for the family. They would give us at the, at the hospitals and pharmacies in Iran because we were so many and so many of us needed. Like we will, basically it was wholesale syrups for respiratory issues to, to, to deal with. During the attack, I like that day, I lost my uncle from mother's side, my, my mother's brother and three of his kids. After months, we found two daughters and a son. We found a son. He was... Uh, eight years old then. We found his body in an Iranian hospital in Tehran, in the capital. But to these days, we have not found the, the remains or what happened to the two daughters and, uh, and my uncle. You mentioned that 
you had some respiratory issues and that a sister had some other health issues. What other health issues are you aware of in people who survived the chemical attack? Yeah, the, the one I personally suffered was, again, part of my family was the, the, the respiratory issues. It, it took weeks until we got back. I mean, I don't have any details or we don't have any medical records basically to to see what happened. And I assume is because we were not alone. Like the hospitals and the clinics in, 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 in the refugee camps, they were dealing with hundreds of people. And I don't remember any doctor looking at me. So they were basically like mass prescribing uh, for the people. So until until 1991, I don't think really people dealt with anything about, or at least they could talk about the impact and the effects of the chemical attack because we were living under the regime. After we returned to Halabja in 1991, that's when people started to talk about and many people... There's, I mean, to this day, the, the healthcare system in Iraqi Kurdistan, especially in Halabja, is not good, uh, even though there is a hospital, actually, for treating the victims of the chemical attack, but they don't have a lot of equipment and they don't have expertise, basically, skilled doctor to deal with, like, potential cases. But, however, there has been a lot of cases of deformed child being born. In fact, my sister, when I mentioned who had the most problem, she gave birth to a, to a child who had a lot of, uh, he had cliff palate, very severe, and he had heart issues. Unfortunately, he didn't survive. After 10 months, he died. We never know if it was related to chemical attack, but it's an interesting that the mother had issues and then the kid has issues. She has had two more kids since then, and they're both fine and healthy. But in terms of, of similar issues and similar cases of children being born with a lot of severe issues, everybody knows, like, and everybody sees in Halabja that it's, it's, it has increased since the, the attack. But I'm not aware of studies to be done to measure the, the long-term impact. A few years ago, I... I heard like some companies were testing the soils in Halabja to, to find out if there are long-term impact of the attack, especially because to this date, Halabja is actually the main sources of drinking water in Halabja is the underground water, the spring waters. And many, in fact, several of these brown spring waters are nearby mass graves from the, from the, mm. the chemical attack. That's where people... For days after the attack, they collected the bodies and they just, they had mass graves for them to bury them. So what are the long-term impact is a question. And unfortunately, the, the, the government so far has not really, the Kurdistan regional government has not dealt with it. As an adult, Mary Wan remained in the region for some time, working in Syria and Turkey to develop civil society by empowering independent media in Syria. During that time, several chemical attacks occurred in Syria. The, the first one I remember we were in Turkey was the one in east of Damascus that was used. That's the one I remember. It was, of course, not the scale that had been used in Halabcha. They were used in, in, in mortars and projectiles. But it doesn't, it doesn't really matter in terms of the scale of it. 
because I think it was in August, I think if I remember correctly, August 21st in Ruta, Eastern Ruta. I, I remember that day seeing the videos and seeing the children not being able to, to breathe. And again, it brings back all the memories from years ago that I thought I had kind of sealed it. To see a government, again, just like happened in Iraq, or a regime or a leader, you know, using that kind of indiscriminate attack and that kind of brutal, brutal kind of weapon against its people is just, there is no word to describe it. And I, I remember that day and days after and to this day, it just makes me really, really angry. And then unfortunately, it happened elsewhere in Syria again and again. In your view, how could the international community have done a better job of responding to the chemical attacks that occurred in Syria? So to, to be honest, that was always my frustration because having known what happened in Iraq was I was never convinced that Syria really, quote unquote, got rid of all the weapons because even if if the regime gets rid, rid of all the weapons they have, I mean, the skills were still there and the expertise were still there. So they could easily do it again. They could easily produce it again. So that was always my concern with Syria or in a big country like Syria uh, or even in Iraq, how are you sure that the government has gotten rid of everything they had, right, in terms of their stockpile? And so those, those are the questions I always had. And I think the fact that Syria, after delivered or promised to, to destroy everything, was able to use it again in elsewhere. So it kind of proved, at least in the case of Syria, that they either didn't get rid of everything or they still had the resources to easily build weapons again. I am not sure what kind of weapons they use. I think mostly they were chlorines and other attacks. I haven't seen reports on exactly what kind of chemical agents they use. What could be improved, I think probably more rigorous monitoring, more rigorous inspections, and more commitment from the international community that there will be more effective response when these agreements and you know are violated. I think in, in, in terms of Syria, even after the last time they used the US response, which was at least in the media was fine, but just bombarding some random airports that the regime could basically make it operational in a week after the attack. That's the response. I don't think that was adequate for the level of the violation that the regime was was carrying out. But again, the U.S. government is not should not be alone. I think the international community in general needs to step up and set the boundaries and the limits against the use of these weapons. Given the fact that Syria has used chemical weapons, and they've actually been used in a couple of other countries, do you think the fact that there has not been a strong response may encourage other countries, governments, or other organizations to use chemical weapons? Uh, uh, no doubt. No doubt. And I think that those regimes, they're getting smarter 
in terms of the scale of using it because the whole point, at least in the case of Syria, was to intimidate people. And it's one weapon based on my experience that absolutely could intimidate an entire population. So every time a regime is using a chemical weapon and it goes unpunished, it encouraged the same regime and other regimes to follow suit. If in 2015 and 16 there was more like fierce response to what Syria did, I'm not sure, but, but it could have basically kind of made the regime to reconsider its position and, and its stance how often and, and if it can again attack people. In your view, what do people need to know about chemical weapons that makes them so different from other types of weapons that are used in conflict? Each instance of using indiscriminate weapon against civilian population leaves the impact, mental impact of on, on, on people for years to come. But, and to be honest, for me, having gone through conventional war as a victim, because as I said, our town from 1980 until 1988, we were going through daily bombardments of, from the Iranian side. A lot of wars in the area I grew up because of the Iran-Iraq war. But from all that, I do remember a couple of instances from the bombardment, but I, I will never forget the chemical attack is that the, the spot, the marks that it leaves you on you, the mental, the psychological impact that is never going to go away. I think for me personally, that's the difference. And I don't think anybody has gotten over it. And especially as I was talking about, you know, all the questions we still have and we cannot find answers. So, you know, as I, as I say, I don't want to compare what people go through. War is absolutely horrible. But I think, at least for me and probably others, the, the use of chemical weapon, the dis indiscriminate, basically, way of attacking people and the absolutely horrible way to die is, is just quite bad. What's your opinion about the fact that there was a long wait uh, for justice uh, before Saddam Hussein and his cousin, Chemical Ali, were actually caught? I mean, I, I was happy when they caught, and everybody was happy when they caught. I, I have no doubt. I mean, people, victims of their brutality. But I don't know how to put it, but it's also like in terms of really justice get done, I would not call it that way because Saddam was not tried for the for the chemical attack. He was tried for a for an assassination against him. So they the the the, the, the victims of the chemical attack they really didn't have a day in court to mm -hmm. to talk about what happened, to hear Saddam talk about it. So it is I mean he, he got what he deserved, I think, but I would not call it justice. And then the same thing goes for chemical Ali. The death is one part of it, and I think the recognition and for the victims to have a day in court where they can discuss what they went through and what it was like to go through and have 
some answer for why this happened. I mean, to this day, people like me and everybody else I know is we are struggling with this question, why did it happen? And, and, and these are the things that I don't think the victims, anyone has really gotten an answer so far. If you could tell people what the most important thing they should know about chemical weapons is, what would that be? I think you don't want even your enemy to go through it. I would say that. Uh, that the fact that you're basically to, in many cases, I've been told is to, to have people slowly die for no apparent reason other than that you're breathing. And that's a normal thing. Like everybody, we are doing it every single second of our life. But then all of a sudden, you just take that breath of air and it kills you and you cannot do anything about it. Just knowing that that's just a very, very gruesome and horrible way. And it's, as I said, you know, it's not, you know, in, in other wars, you know, you have collateral damage, but in, in the chemical attack, in chemical weapon, you don't, they don't know the difference between a, a children and an elderly, a woman and a man, innocent or not innocent. So it's, it's just everybody is a target. Well, thank you very much for sharing your time, your memories, and your opinions. Thank you. Wow. What a sad, powerful, and incredibly important human story. Thank you so much to Mary Wan for sharing that powerful part of his life, and to John for asking such thought-provoking questions. Too often, the real and potential effects of weapons of mass destruction are trivialized, codified and dehumanized into data that strips them of their real and emotional toll. Mary Wan's account of what it was like to be the target of weapons of mass destruction, the terror, panic, and the lingering effects of exposure to those weapons are important for us all to remember. We also need to remember that Mary Wan was gassed by his own government. This action, which was part of a coordinated effort to eliminate the ethnic Kurdish minority from this part of Iraq, was done under the cover of a callous military strategy, trying to halt an Iranian advance through that part of the country. To dive into this just a little bit more, I think that this tale, and others like it, can help illustrate that by merely possessing weapons of mass destruction, we can normalize their use. With unreliable or cruel leaders at the helm, using WMD during times of crisis, or for leaders' own vile purposes, becomes possible. It's sort of, if we have these weapons, why can't we use them? It is also important to remember that these weapons are still out there and in troubling quantities. Some nations, like North Korea, are not party to the Chemical Weapons Convention, while Syria, which had all of its declared chemical weapons destroyed in 2014, seems to have also held on to undeclared weapons or chemical precursors, as further chemical attacks have been carried out in that nation's ongoing civil war. The United States, which once maintained one of the largest contemporary stockpiles of chemical weapons and led the fight to create the CWC, has actually fallen behind its commitments to destroy our own chemical weapons. The original deadline for the complete destruction of our chemical stockpile was in 2007, but the process was slowed over safety concerns. After receiving an extension of five years from the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, we are still not finished. As of today, our destruction operations are not planned to be completed until 2023. It is clear that despite all of our efforts, Mary Wan's story shows that even today, the unspeakable horror of chemical weapons attacks remains. But we can change that. Together, we can demand that our leaders 
finish the job, and finally eliminate chemical weapons worldwide. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a product of the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. It is produced by Rowan Humphreys. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at nukes underscore of underscore hazard and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash armscontrolcenter. Thanks again for tuning in and see you next time.